Everyone says that you should be just. And moreover, that it's a good thing to be just, that it's a good thing, noble and admirable, to be virtuous. But why? Why exactly should you be just? Really, what is it about justice, or about virtue generally, that makes it worthwhile? What makes it good? What makes it good for you? Why is being just good for the just man? What benefit does being just bring to the person who is just? To be clear, there are benefits and then there are benefits. We're talking now about the intrinsic good, the intrinsic benefit of being just. Everyone knows that there are extrinsic benefits of being just, more precisely of seeming to be just. After all, when it comes to external benefits, it's really hard to know whether you're receiving them because you actually are just or because you appear to be just. Everyone admires, or at least says that they admire, justice and the just person. And that right there is a benefit. The just man is honored for being just. And there are other good things that come along with having this good reputation. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's clear if someone has rewarded you for being just, then you must have appeared just to that person. It's possible that you appear just and also actually are just. But it's also possible that you merely appear to be just, and that you are, in fact, not just. So, when we're talking about the external rewards that come from being just, or, for that matter, the external punishments that come from being unjust, we're not actually addressing the vital question, the question of the intrinsic desirability of being just. Is there something about being just that, in itself, is good for you? Is justice considered in itself good for man. This is the burning question for Glaucon at the beginning of Book Two of the Republic. And Socrates' answer to this question will carry us through to the very end of the dialogue. Things are going to get complicated. Socrates answers him with the help of an extended analogy, a very extended analogy, which compares the individual person to a city and then compares the order of the person's soul to the regime or ordering of the city. Socrates begins this analogy midway through book two when he founds what he calls a city in speech. There are going to be a number of twists and turns in the remaining nine books of the Republic, but the whole conversation now is aimed at answering Glaucon's question. In book one, Socrates had pointed out that what he and Thrasymachus were talking about was no small matter, but instead the greatest matter of all, the question, how should I live? What is the best way of life? That is Glaucon's question now. He demands an answer from Socrates, and he's not going to let him go until he gets one. And it is our privilege to be able to listen in on their conversation. As Glaucon says at 358b, I desire to hear what each is, what justice is, and what injustice is, and what power it has all alone by itself when it is in the soul dismissing its wages and consequences. Socrates obeys him. Socrates sets aside the wages and consequences of justice and injustice, the earthly rewards and punishments that you might receive from another in this life, whether that other is a human being or a god who rewards justice and punishes injustice. And he also sets aside the otherworldly rewards and punishments that the gods might grant you in the afterlife. Socrates remains focused until the very end of the Republic on answering the question, is justice in itself good for man? 
is the just life, the best life for us all to live here and now? Socrates' answer, of course, is yes. But his explanation for why he says yes is a bit complicated. And in book two, he has only just started to give his answer, to give the reason for his answer. We'll have to be patient if we want to understand his answer. And we should be patient and diligent in following the argument. The question of the Republic is perhaps the least abstract, least remote, most practical, most pressing and important question any of us can ask ourselves about the way we conduct our lives. We should treat it this way, if, that is, we want to be happy, if we want to discover and lead the best life for a human being. So let's look at what we read in book two. Book two is divided into three large sections. In the first part, Glaucon restarts the conversation, restoring Thrasymachus's argument, which had been refuted by Socrates in book one, and indeed restating that argument with a conciseness, a precision, and a forcefulness that exceeds Thrasymachus's own, although he does so coolly, not hotly. And he does, as he claims, and as he does, he claims that he himself does not believe in this Thrasymachian argument about justice and injustice, but rather he's been talked deaf by Thrasymachus and countless others with this argument and has never heard it answered, refuted to his satisfaction. Glaucon is joined in this first part by his brother Adamantus, who adds a kind of kicker to the argument for injustice. Adamantus points out that the traditional authorities, poets, fathers, and cities, have failed, utterly failed, to teach young men like himself that justice is desirable in itself. This adds a further urgency to the question, raising the pressure on Socrates in two ways. First, because if he doesn't give these young men a good argument for justice, no one will. And second, it raises the pressure on Socrates because it brings him, the philosopher speaking in defense of justice, into conflict with the traditional authorities of the Greek city. In the second part of Book 2, Socrates accepts the task that has been given to him by Glaucon and Adamantus. He says that he must accept it because it would be impious to let justice be slandered and not rise to her defense. Yet, he qualifies his answer very importantly by pointing out that what he is offering is his opinion. He does not claim to know what justice is, but he must speak in her defense, so he does the best he can. He proposes to answer the question indirectly through the extended analogy of the Sidian speech, which is to say, the origin, composition, and character of a city described in and through conversation. Socrates then founds or establishes this Sidian speech, describing its origin and growth uh, of a bare-bone city, the city of utmost necessity with Adamantus, which leads Glaucon to interrupt, deriding their primitive city as a city of sows, a city fit for pigs. Socrates then develops in his conversation with Glaucon what he calls a feverish city rather than the bare bones, healthy or true city. It turns out that this feverish or luxurious city, because of its desire for luxury, its desire to have more than is strictly necessary, must go to war. And a city at war needs warriors. And so we arrive at the third part of book two, the description of the warrior class of the city, the guardians, and the beginning of a description of the education for the guardians. 
Socrates' description of the education of the guardians will run until the very end of book three. We've just seen the beginning of it here. Specifically, we've seen a part of a part of their education. Socrates says the guardians must receive a musical education and a gymnastic education. Musical here is meant in a very broad way, not just notes and rhythm and melodies and harmonies and lyrics, but a truly musical education, an education under the muses. Our translator Bloom has a nice comment on this, uh, page 449, note 36. As Socrates says, the guardians need gymnastic for bodies and music for the soul. The final part of book two, then, gives us the beginning of the musical education, or soul formation, of the guardians in the city and speech. Let's go back now to, to look a little more closely at the three stages of the argument in book two. Glaucon restores the argument of Thrasymachus, and in so doing, he offers a more concise, more precise, more rigorous version of it. His fundamental point is that being unjust is naturally good for the one who is unjust. It's naturally good for man, whereas being just is not naturally good for man. In fact, its apparent goodness, the apparent goodness of justice, is merely a matter of convention, of nomos, law or custom, rather than nature, phusis. He lays out the argument for injustice in three parts. First, he states the kind of thing that justice is and where it comes from, how it comes into being. Second, he argues that all those who practice justice do so unwillingly as something that is necessary rather than good. And finally, he compares the life of the unjust man to that of the just man and finds that the former is far better than the latter. Scholars refer to the position that Glaucon is arguing for as conventionalism. The reason for this is clear from the first thing that Glaucon says. The naturally best thing for man is to do injustice, to get the better of others, to take advantage of others in every way and enjoy the fruits of one's own successful unjust actions. But the naturally worst thing for man is to suffer injustice, to be on the receiving end of exploitation or oppression. And, Glaucon says, the bad in suffering injustice far exceeds the good in doing it. So, while the most desirable thing of all would be to become a tyrant, the kind of person who inflicts injustice upon others without ever suffering the consequences, being realistic, many of us are not going to succeed in making ourselves tyrants. So, it's realistic to settle for the second best thing, which is not suffering injustice or not being oppressed and taken advantage of by others. This, Glaucon says, is the origin of justice and law. It turns out that these very categories, justice and injustice, are man-made and artificial, conventional rather than natural. That's why we call this the conventionalist uh, thesis or the conventionalist uh, opinion. Justice or law is something invented by man as a compromise through a compact, a kind of agreement with each other, agreeing not to harm other people so long as other people don't harm you. Justice and law are something invented by weak men, by girly men, you might say, who themselves lack the vigor and daring of the real man, who would never settle for second best, who's audacious, 
and strong-willed enough to go after the best thing of all, to become a tyrant, to give free rein to his own natural impulses. Such a man, the true man, the manly man, who is able to succeed in becoming truly unjust, would be insane to, to agree never to do injustice to another person. If taking advantage of others in order to satisfy one's own desires is the best way of life according to nature for a human being, then of course you'd have to be a madman to forswear this opportunity, to give it up, provided of course that you were the kind of person who's strong enough to be able to achieve it. As for everyone else, the sheep of the world, the girly men, the wimps, of course it makes sense for them to agree to the compact of justice, to agree to live and let live, not to harm others so long as they don't harm you. But that's a clear second best, according to the conventionalist view, and even the wimps of the world in this view uh, know it in some, some deep, deep, dark place of their soul. Justice is a mere convention, a human invention, a suppression of our genuine human nature. By nature, human beings, in the words of the Athenian delegates in the Melian Dialogue, seek to rule wherever they can, to be or to become the strong who do what they can, as opposed to remaining the weak who suffer what they must. Glaucon then provides a memorable story uh, as evidence that doing injustice, getting the better of another, is naturally good, naturally desirable, because it is, in the story, what every man would do if he had the chance. This is the story of the Ring of Gyges, or the ring discovered by an ancestor of Gyges, and it is also, by the way, the inspiration for the Ring of Power in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. But instead of Gollum, we have Gyges, or the ancestor of Gyges. Any man possessing this ring of invisibility, whether he was considered just or unjust, would wind up doing the same things. The unlimited power that comes from the ring will lead every man to injustice. Sooner or later, probably sooner, in the case of Gyges' ancestor in the story, immediately, he would go out and steal, rape, kill, free, imprison, whoever he liked, whenever he liked, and, quote, to do other things as an equal to a god among humans. No one would be strong enough to stick by justice and bring himself to keep away from what belongs to others and not lay hold of it. This story is Glaucon's evidence that doing the things which men have agreed to call unjust are naturally good. They naturally draw us to them, and we will do them when we have the chance. If we really believe that justice is good for us, we wouldn't be unjust, even when we could get away with it. Finally, in the third part of Glaucon's restatement or restoration of Thrasymachus's argument, Glaucon paints a vivid picture of the truly miserable life of the perfectly just man, who doesn't even have the reputation for justice, and ends his life tortured and pathetic, utterly broken, even disabused of his prior belief that justice is good, in contrast to the truly blessed life of the perfectly unjust man, who, as is fitting for the height of injustice, has the reputation for being just, and is able to act as a tyrant among people while propitiating the gods to their satisfaction. Before turning to Adamantus's speech, let me point out what Glaucon emphasizes at 362a. The unjust man, he says, pursues a thing dependent on truth 
and does not live in the light of opinion. Whereas the just man has been duped by opinion, by the authoritative opinion of society, the conventional constructions of justice and injustice. In this view, the conventionalist view that Glaucon has articulated, the strong, brave, daring, manly man who grabs whatever he wants from whoever he wants and gets away with it all, is the man who is enlightened, who knows the truth, who recognizes the truth about things, about the human condition, who is living the life in accord with nature. By contrast, the weak man, who is incapable of doing so, and who is credulous or gullible enough to believe in things like justice, doesn't know the truth. He's still stuck in the world of opinions, the false teaching of the city, of the laws of society, that, he sh that has told him that he should be just rather than unjust, that he should be restrained and fair and respectful towards others. The conventionalist thesis, in other words, is a sophisticated position. It's an, it's an enlightened position. It's the result of enlightenment or sophistication. It claims for itself knowledge of nature and liberation from ignorance, liberation from the mere opinion that is taught by societies. The conventionalists, in other words, recognize the distinction between phusis, nature, and nomos, law or custom. They recognize the distinction between truth and opinion as well. This, these are the same distinctions that philosophers such as Socrates make. Although, crucially, Socrates will define the relation between nature and custom differently, and more crucially still, will define what is naturally good for man differently than the conventionalists do. But that's the crux of the issue, figuring out what is naturally good for man, what the, what the nature of man requires, elaborating an entire account of what man's nature is and what will satisfy it. That is what Glaucon's restatement has, has brought to the fore, as what Socrates really has to answer if he's going to answer the, the argument for injustice. In any case, it's no surprise that sophists and philosophers would be mistaken for each other, that a layman would mistake Socrates for Thrasymachus. And it should be clear from Glaucon's speech that Socrates is going to have to provide an alternative anthropology, an alternative account of human nature, an alternative account of what is naturally good for a human being if he is to successfully counter the conventionalist teaching. We also get a hint at the end of Glaucon's description of the life of the unjust man at 362c, that Glaucon will have to provide an, an alternative account of the gods as well, an alternative theology. But more on that in a little bit. We arrive now at Adamantus's contribution. As I read it, what Adamantus adds to Glaucon's argument is this. He points out that the tradition, the tradition that exists in 5th century Greece, the tradition that the Athenian fathers have been handing down to their sons during the Peloponnesian War, is insufficient, utterly insufficient, to answer the challenge that has been posed by Thrasymachus and restated by Glaucon. Let me say that again more plainly. The tradition ain't gonna cut it. The traditional authorities, the fathers who raise their children and exhort them to be just, the poets who teach things about the gods and heroes and thus about how one should live, and the cities themselves and their authority, have all of them failed to teach the young men that justice is intrinsically desirable. Fathers praise the reputation for justice and its good effects. 
The poets teach that justice is noble, but difficult and full of drudgery, whereas injustice is, well, it's shameful, but it's also full of sweet things and easy. As for the gods, as Adamantus says, either they don't exist, or they do exist, but they don't care about what human beings do, or they do exist, they care about human beings, and they've been accurately described by the laws and the poets, which is to say, they, the gods, can be persuaded and perverted by sacrifices. The just man, then, might not be punished by the gods, but the unjust man can gain all of the good things of life, avoiding any worldly punishment through his tyrannical power, and then sacrifice just a little bit to satisfy the gods, thereby avoiding their punishments. No one, Adamantus says, has ever praised justice in itself. They only praise the reputations, honors, and gifts that come from it. If someone could be taught the intrinsic goodness of justice from youth onward, this, he says, would be the best guard against being unjust or becoming unjust. Until that happens, the Greek tradition has few, if any, resources to stand up against the conventionalist teaching of the sophists. And in many ways, the traditional praise of justice is done so poorly that it plays into and makes the young men easy targets for the life of injustice. To sum up, the speeches of Glaucon and Adamantus complement each other. Glaucon's speech shows us the strength of the sophistic or conventionalist assault on justice. Adamantus's speech shows us the weakness of the traditional defense of justice. The challenge posed by Thrasymachus and people like him is not merely a problem of innovation, of deviation from an otherwise healthy tradition, which can be answered in a simple way by returning to that tradition. What is needed is someone who can approach that tradition with a critical eye, someone who can think about human affairs beyond uh, the boundaries of that tradition. What is needed is a philosopher. Enter Socrates. Socrates is astounded by Glaucon and Adamantus, by the fact that they can, with such forcefulness and precision, restate the argument for injustice and yet remain resistant to it. He says he knows that they mean what they say, that they don't believe their own argument or don't want to believe it, by the rest of your character, since on the basis of the arguments themselves, I would distrust you. It's almost a miracle, he says. Something quite divine must certainly have happened to you to be able to understand the conventionalist or Thrasymachian argument for the life of injustice and yet remain unpersuaded by it. Glaucon and Adamantus thus appear to be the perfect students or perhaps the perfect co-inquirers, the perfect collaborators in conversation with Socrates. They genuinely need to hear him speak because they don't know a convincing argument for justice. They desire to hear one, and they are good-willed. They have heard and are doing their best to resist the powerful argument for injustice. Before making his argument in favor of justice, Socrates says they need to know what justice is. And in order to discover what justice is, he suggests that they describe a city in speech. He proposes this because, on the one hand, justice is both an ethical and a political term. 
In other words, we can speak of the justice of a man, justice in an individual, the virtue of justice in a person, and the justice of a city. <coughs> Socrates suspects that there is a good reason for this coincidence in terminology. He suspects, without yet having argued for this idea, that there are two senses of justice. These two senses of justice are fundamentally related, perhaps fundamentally the same. And so the one can be understood through an examination of the other. This is why he proposes building a city in speech, because a city is bigger than a man, and so justice will be easier to see in it. Socrates, by the way, hasn't yet justified this hunch of his, this hunch that he has that there's some fundamental similarity between a city and a man, but he will. He'll do so next week in book four. There's a lot to be said about the city in speech, but I'd just like to raise a few questions here. First, Socrates says the city comes into existence, quote, because each of us isn't self-sufficient, but is in need of much. No man can provide all the necessities for himself. This, Socrates says, is why cities are established. My first question is, can we compare or contrast this with what Glaucon said back at 359a about the origin of justice and law? They're talking about the origin of distinct but closely related things. Socrates about the political community itself, Glaucon about the ideas and practices of justice and law. But can we begin to see how Socrates is diverging from the conventionalist thesis even here in his idea about why cities are founded in the first place? My second question is about the fact that there are two cities in speech here. First, Socrates and Adamantus found the city of utmost necessity. Socrates also calls this the true city or healthy city. It'd be worth wondering what that means. In any case, Glaucon interrupts them, deriding the bare-bones rustic community that they have described as a city fit for pigs. And so, he and Socrates together transform this first city, or corrupt it, into what Socrates says is now a feverish city or a luxurious city. I have a cluster of questions here about the two cities and the transformation or transition from one to another. First, does Socrates provoke or somehow invite Glaucon to interrupt him and help him corrupt the first city? If so, why would he do that? Second, is the city of utmost necessity, the city of pigs, really incomplete? Glaucon says that it is. It lacks relishes and all manner of fineries. My question is, is this first city actually incomplete, or is it only incomplete in Glaucon's view? Why, in other words, does Socrates allow Glaucon to corrupt the first city, the true or healthy city? What, if anything, was lacking in it? And if it was incomplete or imperfect, what justifies Socrates in dubbing it the true and healthy city? There's a lot more to be said and asked about the foundation of the city in speech, including that principle of one man, one art that Socrates and Adamantus agree to, the suggestion by Socrates that different people are more apt to practice different arts, and just how far we should take these natural differences, and of course Socrates' argument that the origin of war lies in the desire for luxury, or the desire to have more than is necessary. Perhaps we can take up some of these questions in the discussion. For now, let's hurry on to the Guardians. Finally, part three of book two. The introduction of the Guardians, or warrior class of the city, 
Socrates' description of their nature or character, and the beginning of his description of their education. Socrates convinces Glaucon that the city, now that it has been corrupted and will need to go to war with other cities, is going to need soldiers. Not just any soldiers, not amateur citizen soldiers, but a professional or specialized class of warriors. This is where the clip from American Sniper that I sent around, the distinction between sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs, becomes relevant. <clears throat> Actually, we'll need to sti stitch together several passages in the Republic to talk about that clip. First, Thrasymachus's shepherd speech in Book 1. Second, the passage we're looking at right now in Book 2. And finally, Socrates' return to the language of sheep, dogs, and wolves at the end of our next reading, the end of Book 3. Here, we see Socrates introduce the idea of the noble puppy, the well-bred dog, as an analog to the guardian. The guardians of the city must be like dogs, not only in their abilities, sharp senses, speed, and strength, but also insofar as they are gentle toward their own and cruel to enemies. Like dogs, the guards must be spirited. This is a very important term in Greek, thumos, that we'll be coming back to throughout the rest of the Republic. It's not spirit in the sense of spiritual. Thumos is spirit in the sense of fighting spirit. Thumos, or spiritedness, is self-assertedness, having a backbone, having a strong sense of your own self-worth and dignity, that quality of character that makes you stand up for yourself and for others, that especially manifests itself in anger, whether it's truly righteous anger or actually self-righteous anger. The guardians, like dogs, must be spirited, must have thumos, but they must, like dogs, direct it only toward enemies of the city, not toward their fellow citizens. The city needs warriors to defend it, but it must make sure that these skilled killers do not, in turn, become the oppressors of the people. They must be like sheepdogs, defending the sheep or the citizens of the city against wolves, and not become wolves themselves. Socrates also adds the odd remark that dogs are philosophic, that the guardians must be philosophic too, in the sense that they hate ignorance and love knowledge, hate what they don't know, like the stranger at the door at whom the dog barks, but love what they know, as a dog loves his master. We'll have more to say about philosophy and the guardians in a few weeks. For now, the question is, how do you make sure the puppies grow up to be sheepdogs and not wolves? How do you make a true guardian? Socrates begins to describe the education of the guardians, specifically their musical education, their education in stories and songs that is meant to form their souls, and that is a necessary prelude to their gymnastic education, the formation of their bodies. The musical education must come first, because you want to make sure the guardians have good souls before you give them strong bodies. You want to make sure they're going to use their power well before you make them powerful. Let me point out a few features of this education and the conclusion of Book 2, which contains the principles of Socratic theology. First, Socrates divides their education into two parts, gymnastic and musical. And he says correctly that this is a very traditional way of conducting an education. It is the one that has been discovered over a great expanse of time. And it would have been familiar to any Athenian in his time. So Socrates adopts the traditional form of education for now. But he then refines or corrects it. 
Picking up on Adamantus's criticism of the Greek tradition, which was so inadequate to answer the challenge of Thrasymachus, Socrates begins criticizing the poets, Hesiod and Homer, for what their poems teach about the gods. We'll see in Book 3 that he also criticizes the poets for what they teach about heroes. In modern terms, Socrates advocates for a pretty strict censorship of the kind of art or literature or cultural material that the guardians will be exposed to when they are very young. He does so for moral reasons, for the effects that such stories about the gods would have on their moral development. So he is here adopting the form of a traditional Greek education, but he's strongly criticizing that traditional content, what the stories actually say about gods and heroes. However, he qualifies this critique of the poets in a few important ways. He mentions that these stories about the gods should not be to, told to the young, not even if they were true, suggesting he doesn't know whether or not they are true, but that, that is not the most relevant question here, so much as the effect on the moral formation or corruption of the youth. Speaking of Homer in particular, Socrates says at 378d, all the battles of the gods Homer made must not be accepted in the city, whether they are made with a hidden sense or without a hidden sense. A young thing can't judge what is hidden sense and what is not. But what he takes into his opinions at, his, at that age has a tendency to become hard to eradicate, eradicate and unchangeable. In other words, Socrates allows that there may be a more refined reading of Homer a more subtle and correct reading of the hidden sense contained in Homer than what most Greeks, and especially most young people, will take away. What do most Greeks take away? Well, uh, Plutarch tells a story about Alexander the Great, that Alexander the Great slept uh, with a copy of uh, the Iliad under his pillow. Uh, Alexander the Great's lesson that he learned from the Iliad was, you should be like Achilles, and what is Achilles? Uh, he's, he's the kind of man who desires so much honor that if he could, he would conquer the world. That might be taken as a kind of uh, typical Greek takeaway from, from, um, from Homer's Iliad. It would be worth asking what Socrates means by the hidden sense of Homer, the hidden sense of his stories about the gods battling each other, and whether he, Socrates, thinks this hidden sense might actually square with what he himself says about the divine. In any case, practically speaking, the hidden sense doesn't matter. It's not what's going to stick with the young men who are hearing Homeric poetry. So Homer must be censored. This, despite the fact that Socrates says that we, himself included, praise much in Homer. Let me end by pointing out that this discussion of the musical education of the Guardians has led Socrates to describe models for speech about the gods. Socrates himself is not going to rewrite the poems about gods and heroes, but he thinks someone needs to, and he thinks he does know the kind of thing they should be saying. Book three concludes with a discovery of two or three principles of Socratic theology, because that is the word in the Greek for speech about the gods. This is 379a. Theology, theologia, giving a logos, a speech or a reasoned account about the divine. This, by the way, is as far as I know, the very first instance of the word theologia in the Greek language anywhere. Which is why, even if theology is the queen of the sciences, humanities, in which we read the Republic, should rightfully be considered the king.
The two or three principles of Socratic theology are, first, that the God is not the cause of all things, but only of good things. Second, that the God is not a wizard, meaning the God is unchanging and would never change himself into something else. And finally, related to the second point, gods are not liars. The gods do not mislead humans by lies in speech or in deed. These are, apparently, the features of the divine which Socrates himself believes in. And there are also, certainly, the features of the divine that Socrates thinks will be most beneficial in raising ambitious, spirited young men to become sheepdogs or guardians rather than wolves or tyrants. This theology will also bring Socrates into direct conflict with the mythological or poetic accounts of the gods that have been given by Homer and Hesiod, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides, the poets who have received and passed along the closest thing that ancient Greece has to a sacred scriptural tradition. Or at least, as Socrates hints quietly, this theology will bring him into direct conflict with the dominant interpretation of the poetic teachings about the gods. I conclude, then, with a question to tie together Socrates' criticism of the poets with Adamantus' speech near the beginning of Book 2. What is Socrates' stance toward the tradition? How exactly is Plato here depicting the moral effects of the Greek tradition? Socrates is explicitly criticizing it and seeking to reshape or reform that tradition. Is he doing so because he thinks the tradition is simply too weak to stand up to the sophists or conventionalists' praise of injustice? Or does he think that the tradition itself feeds into the desire for tyranny? And in either case, is he right?